0: This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com/writingexcuses. Season 12, episode 9.
1: This is Writing Excuses Q&A on Viewpoint. 15 minutes long because you're in a hurry and you have questions. I'm Brandon. I'm Piper. I'm Dan. I'm Howard. And we're going to start with a question from Alan. Third-person omniscient is generally the norm in most fantasy sci-fi. I would addendum that to adult um, mm-hmm. at fantasy sci-fi. and teen, first-person present is much more common, I would say. Agreed. Do you have any ideas, tips, tricks to make this voice more interesting or unusual? I'm going to pitch that one at Piper because I feel like we all did an episode talking about this, but you weren't there for that one
2: you know what, when it comes to third person omniscient, I like for that narrative to have a personality. So giving that person characterization of some sort, even though it's omniscient, all-knowing, there should be sort of a sense of humor to it, mm. I would okay. think. Give yeah. them a personality. Don't make them a neutral god, shall we say.
1: Excellent. <laughs> um, third person, and I actually I read that and I was just saying, third person limited is generally the norm. I think they have that inversed. Yeah. Yeah. It's very rare to see a third person omniscient. It used
3: to be the norm. It used to be be the norm. And if you want to see it done as well as I've ever seen it,
1: Dune by Frank Herbert. Yes. We always use that one, and it is very well done. Um, But yeah, let's. uh, Limited. How can you make your limited more interesting? Let's ask that. Uh, And it's just going to be with character, right? It's all the stuff we've we've talked about on writing excuses. Make that character sing. Uh, mm-hmm. Make the way they see the world. If you're bored by doing this, your character's not interesting enough. It's not your, it's not your viewpoint. It's the, thing, it, it's the character.
4: Yeah, yeah. we've been
1: workshopping uh,
4: Bob Defendi's uh, Death by Cliche series, which is comedy, and and only one of the characters has a has a viewpoint that would tell the sorts of narrative jokes that, you know, he's, he's the one with 20th century, 21st century experience. Uh, and so what we've done during the workshop, uh, workshopping during the critiquing and whatever else is try to identify how are each of these other people funny? What are the things that they do that is quirky and funny uh, what kind of jokes do they tell? Mm. Um, it's it's difficult to get right, but it's critical for the for the feel of the book that you don't get into a viewpoint that doesn't fit the book because this person can't be funny.
1: So, next question comes from Darcy, who I assume is the Darcy who always asks ex- asks excellent <laughs> questions on these things. Um, <laughs> it usually takes me a few drafts slash revisions to really nail down a character's voice. Is this normal for most writers? Any tips on how to discover it in other ways?
4: Well, so, we, <laughs> yeah. well let me, let me, start, let me start by saying congratulations on having figured out how to put a wrapper around the thing that is working for you. Please don't take steps to break that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, this is not uncommon. I wouldn't say it's most writers because writers are an eclectic bunch and everything, everyone does something different from the other writers. But in this case, if it's working, it's fine. Mm. Um, And I would say for me, it usually takes a few chapters that I throw away to nail down a character voice. And even then, by the end of the book, I have to revise the next few chapters at the beginning to get them to sound right.
2: Yeah, I would say if you really want to experiment, because, you know, if it isn't broke, don't fix it. Absolutely. But if you want to experiment, then maybe try writing a quick scene that is pivotal to your character. It's important to your character. And if that doesn't shine, then maybe you want to give it a go with it from a different aspect.
3: Yeah. People, novelists hate it when you suggest they write something that they're not actually going to use in their novel, but stuff like that, write a sample scene, write a monologue, write conversation, write a a job interview. Uh, It's anything that will let that character talk so you can figure out who they are.
1: Nick asks, what is the most effective way to portray an unreliable third limited viewpoint in which the reader can still know what is actually happening? That's a tough one.
2: That is. You kind of have to feather in. Yeah. It almost seems... That they're unreliable.
3: Yeah. Contrary to your purpose. If you have an unreliable narrator, it's because you want to fool the audience somehow. Um, Mm -hmm. Although not always. And I'm thinking John Cleaver does this a lot where... um, it's called dramatic irony, where the audience is aware of something the characters are not. Um, where John is wrestling with some question and the reader's like, you sociopathic moron.
1: Everyone with emotions knows the answer to this question. Um, and I would say that's the, the main reason I've seen it done. Matt Coffin mm-hmm. in The Wheel of Time is an untrustworthy, third-person limited narrator. And he's untrustworthy because he always thinks one thing and then does something else Like, he's trustworthy, and that's what he's actually thinking. But the way he will describe people and go about his life is not accurate. It's in his voice, in his own actions. Betray the truth that he thinks he's a hero, that he's really a hero, even though he's saying, I'm not doing this because I'm a hero. That sort of thing, Um, yeah, Mm -hmm. it it, it can really pop out a character. I would say that you need to wear it on your sleeve a little bit if you're trying for this. You yeah. to establish yes. this is how this character sees the world. It's not a trick. It is their personality. Well, and the reason to be overt about it is that you have to
3: cue your reader into the fact that they need to be looking for subtext. Yeah, they need to be looking for what's actually going on, despite what the character is saying. That's exactly I use it.
4: <laughs> I use the unreliable narrator uh, principle as hand-wavium when I don't want to commit to math. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I'll have, a, I'll have a character throw out a couple of round numbers uh, when they're describing, you know, how big something is or how heavy something is. Um, if, the, if it's in a narrator box, if the actual narrator says it, then I've kind of committed to it. But if one of the characters says it in a dialogue bubble, uh, <laughs> that's fine. Hey, Captain Tagon doesn't actually know how heavy a planet is. Why are you asking him? Why, why are you using his number in your in your email to me about how he got it wrong? Oh,
1: that's sure. great. <laughs> uh, you know, periodically, uh, Pat Rothfuss will get an email from somebody um, saying they said this and they said this and the other part, and his response is simply, "You trusted him," <laughs> um, which is which is always fun, but. Yeah, he does a lot to establish that Quoth is not a trustworthy narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, Merlin asked a question, which I thought was really interesting. How does one thoroughly immerse themselves in a setting person? I know it's very subjective, but what are the most effective methods you have found in feeling, for example, what a pregnant woman, a pious man, or a lost child might feel? It so far eludes me. Meditation. Okay.
2: <laughs> um, I would actually, it's not far from meditation, but guided imagery... If you're the type of person to want to sit down and do that, it can o- It only takes a couple minutes to sit down, close your eyes, and mm. and really try to take in what it might be. You know, if you're trying to trying to experience that idea, um, you either go and find a person who is doing that thing and try to experience it through being near them, or you imagine putting yourself in that place.
1: I look for primary sources. If I'm going to be doing something like this, I go find somebody. And it's not so hard these days with the internet.
2: So you found a lost child.
1: You go and you say, what did it feel like to be lost, right? You go, you say, you, if, if you want to find out what it feels like to be a um, pregnant woman, you can't know 100%, most half of the population. But what you can do is you can go to forums where people are sharing their trials and experiences. If you can get the things that people gripe about right, I have found that that gives an instant bond to the character. If they're griping about the right things authentically mm-hmm. because uh, we love to gripe, true. right?
4: The manner in which
1: the question is asked
4: mm-hmm. has me thinking that what he's asking for is method acting for writers.
2: That's kind of why I went to the guided imagery. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> uh, and I found, well, one of my favorite things, favorite discoveries was watching Phil Folio talk when he and I were sitting at dinner and realizing, oh my gosh, you use your face in the mirror to do facial expressions for the characters in the comic. And he made this face, and I'm like, yeah, you totally do that. And he goes, yeah, that's, I, when he wants to be angry, when he wants to be quirky, when he wants to be whatever, he would use his face as a reference. Now, he's fortunate in that he's got a very, very expressive face, uh, but I've caught myself doing some of the same things, where before I can... Before I can write the angry dialogue, before I can draw the angry face, I have to clench up a little bit and. Oh, I'm, I'm mad. Scowly. <laughs> okay, now I can draw it.
2: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving.
3: That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every
1: time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for
2: just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba.
1: Let's stop for our book of the week, which is a book by Dan. Ones
2: and Zeros. Ones and
3: Zeros is the second book in the Mirador series, which is my YA cyberpunk. Um, It's also one of the delivery
4: mechanisms for
3: the book. Yes. Uh, It is about, the first one was, you know, kind of intro to cyberpunk digital drug. This one is, uh, they are gamers and they get to actually go through a tournament. And so it is kind of half sports movie as they play a video game tournament and half heist movie as they use that tournament as an opportunity to steal some data
1: from this massive company. (laughs) That sounds so awesome.
3: I haven't read the (laughs) second one yet.
1: I read the first one and really liked it. Um, The second one's better. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I am really looking forward to it. So that is ones and zeros, and it's out this month. It is. It is out this month, and it is super cool, and you should all read it. All right, next question. Um, So... How do you choose, I'm n- narrowing this question down a little bit, between first and third person? Like, what's your process, they're asking, when you're preparing a story, how do you make that final decision? For me, it's as, the question is as simple as, is this story about
3: the plot or the character? And if it's about the character, I do it in first person. Okay.
2: In contrast, a lot of <laughs> romance is a very character-driven, but... V- It's not as often in first person. YA definitely has a tendency to be in first person, but adult romance has a tendency to be in third. And um, I find I'm more comfortable writing in third to express those characters and their narrative. Um, So for me, it's it's about what I'm most comfortable in to be able to express those characters. Although Mm. occasionally I will do a writing sample to see if first person worked better, just like a quick scene or a quick paragraph.
4: I think our answers, I say our answers, people who talk about writing, uh, the answer to this question is going to change dramatically in 30 or 40 years because, you know, we've moved from uh, omniscient viewpoint to third-person viewpoint in in fantasy. Um, I don't know what's coming next, but a lot of what we get when we read a third-person limited or a first-person or an omniscient or whatever is contextually what are the other things I've read that are like this?
3: Um, Our grandchildren know, will all be reading second person conditional nope. tense. I <laughs> was thinking that.
1: No, you joke. But if VR takes off, I could see second person becoming the way that people experience stories and novels, then shifting to do that. It's
4: all the. It's it's already the way you you experience. You know, I mentioned in a
1: earlier episode uh, Bethesda games. Yes. Um, so we, we joke about that because second person, we'll talk about it later um, mm-hmm. on the podcast uh, near the end of the year, but second person is one of those ones that in literary circles, it's like when somebody's going to try something really literary and fail at it as a student, it's like the student film version of writing they'll do a second person. And yet, um, the best Fantasy Book of the Year last year was a second-person novel, uh, the Fifth Season by NK Jameson. So um, it's It's Alyssa Wong's second-person won Mm a Nebula Award. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So all right, let's go on. A lot of people are asking how you pick the right character for a viewpoint in a scene. Among there's like five different questions. How do you choose whose eyes you're going to see through?
4: Uh, Who's in the most pain? Who is, who is able, for me, who is able to tell the best joke um, <laughs> or who is the most likely to get the best joke told on them. Um, it's, it's really, for me, uh, I mean, understand, I, I hop around a lot because I'm technically in third-person cinematic. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, it's more about where I point the camera, uh, but I'm always looking for which piece of the story is the most interesting who's in it, and if they're not in it, and, and I need them to be in it, well, I, maybe the previous chapter's been written wrong. Yeah. Well,
2: head hopping is common for romance too, because oftentimes you're head hopping between the hero, the heroine, or if you've got a romance that involves more than binary, right, like mm-hmm. you could have a male, male, female, male, female, male, female, female, male. You're gonna be hopping between the main character's points of view. Um, a lot of times it's about for that scene where all of them are in the moment together, who has the highest stakes? Who has the most emotional response to what's going to happen? Because that's the part where the reader is going to be like sucking it all in. Yeah, and I would
1: add to that another rule of thumb would be to look who's going to be doing the most, right? Yeah. Um, having you, you, where you run into difficult choices, and I've run into this a lot, and I've chosen other side is. One person is going to be very emotionally invested by what, the, what is happening in the scene, but another person is doing the act that is going to cause that emotional investment. In that case, I, I go half and half. Sometimes it's the person you know engaged mm-hmm. in the activity and so the person watching, they see their horrified look. Sometimes it's the horrified person watching on as this action happens. Well, and I think a lot of it comes
3: down to what you personally like to write, what you enjoy. I love writing painful decisions. Mm. And so if, you know... In the case like that, I would always default to well, which person is going to have to choose something that they don't want to choose, and that's that's who I go with.
2: Whereas in contrast, you're talking about somebody doing something and somebody horrified by it. Yeah. You know, I write hanky panky, so it's somebody doing something and somebody going whoa. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Oh, hanky panky. somebody horrified that, by the
1: hanky-panky. That yes. is the first time I think we have used the term hanky-panky. Uh, <laughs> I, I am very Don't say happy.
3: it too often. Yeah, like, I That's know. a it, great it,
1: phrase. It, it will to- lose its power. <laughs> that's true. <sure>. Um, <laughs> all right. A lot of people um, are asking things actually about second person. I want to say again, we will do <laughs> an episode on second person in the future. Um One person asks, and some ask similar things to this, I'm writing my first novel. How do I choose to do first person, third person? It's overwhelming. I could do omniscient. I could do non-omniscient. How do I make this decision?
4: Which POV has you sitting down at the keyboard and making words with your finger and on the buttons Okay, okay. (laughs) Seriously, Mm -hmm. uh, you're on your first novel. That's how you humans are, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) You're you're on your first novel, be a human person, and sit in front of the keyboard, and whichever perspective makes the words flow, because 50,000 words from now, a million words from now, you'll look at that and you'll say, oh, wow, I would decide that a lot differently now, but I have no idea what that decision is going to be for you today
2: because you haven't written those words yet. Although if you wanted to do a spot check along the way, you could write a scene or write a chapter and go, is this still working for me? Okay, good. Let's keep going. Mm-hmm. If it's not working for you, uh, maybe try a test scene in another perspective and see if that's working for you better. Right?
3: Yeah. I, th- I think, again, for me, it all comes down to, to what I'm intending to accomplish with the book. If the book is going to be grand in scope and include a lot of different characters, I will... Split it into third rather than one, and you that's know, how things like that.
4: That's how most of us make the decision now. This is someone asking a question from the perspective of the first book.
3: Yeah, yeah.
4: Whatever makes you make words, and then sit down and make the words because that's the most important thing. Yeah. yeah,
1: we want you to finish the book. Whatever you default for on, two on your first one is fine. Practice that. You're going to want to learn to use both tools eventually, anyway. So practice on one of them. Um, all right, so. Um, a lot of people are asking a similar question. I'm going to use Wallace's version because it's the simplest. I have a problem with transitioning between voices. I like this. A lot of people are saying, "How do you know when to cut? How do you smoothly transition from one viewpoint character to another? How do you do? You do a chapter break? Do you sometimes not do a chapter break? How do you decide this?"
2: I like to end on. I like to end on a phrase that's going to resonate with the person. It's got to be impactful in some way, so they take a breath. What's the next page? What's going to happen next? So I try to make sure that wherever it's going to end, it's it's on a really good one-liner.
3: See, and and I I look at the first line of the new scene to make sure that you have that you know whose head you're in as quickly as possible. Yeah, and that's... I do, and I do them all with breaks. I mean, he asked about breaks. I, I don't think I've ever done. Anything as soft even as a scene break. It's all chapter breaks if I'm going to switch heads. Um, but that's just me, and not everyone does that.
4: The concept of the garden path sentence here is important. There's a lot of, there are a lot of sentences, sentences you can write where you know whose perspective you are in. You know which it is that you are writing. But when we read it, we are because of the way you've ordered the words, we are going to see that as being in somebody else's point of view. It's really difficult to catch that without without beta readers. Um, And so, yeah, I do what Dan, what you described. I want my first line to tell me whose point of view I'm in. Um, That first line is often difficult to get right because I'm wordsmithing it to be clever,
3: and by the time I'm done being clever, I've masked whose head we're in. (laughs) You've hidden it. Although, to Piper's point, um, now that I'm thinking more about the books where I've done this, whenever I am about to jump to a new point of view... I do always make sure to end on a real zinger of some kind. You know, if it's one chapter is Kira and the next chapter is also Kira, well, then that first chapter can end however it wants. But if the next chapter is Marcus, we need something awesome to say goodbye to Kira for a while. Yeah. That's my my uh,
4: Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday toolbox. Um, I want to end with, I mean, I'm always ending with a joke, but I want to end with something that, Answers the question, or that raises a completely new question and asks you to chew on it while we step away, or in you know in some way resolves this package mm-hmm. um, because because sometimes I'll cut away and it's it's broken because there wasn't that sort of emotional closure.
1: Man, that was that was a strong answer, guys. You guys did a really good job with that one. <laughs> um, I'm actually gonna let's go a little bit longer. Uh, On this episode, because I have one more I want to ask, and um, there were a lot of questions. I'm sorry if we can't get to your questions, guys, Uh, but a lot of people are asking uh, a question that the least really nails at how to ask the question. My characters start to sound less distinct the further in my story I get. I have noticed that I do this sometimes too. You get so used to writing a character that they blend into the next person or the two kind of converge on one type of uh, of voice. How do you keep this from happening?
2: I actually, and this is, so sometimes when I'm designing my characters, I use a fate core character sheet to get like a high principle. But what I do is for every act, my characters have a high principle that's evolving out of the consequence of what happened in the previous act. And so I'll recheck and maybe give um, them sort of, some sort of dialogue tick that's a result of the consequences from the last act as Mm. part of their high concept for the, for the following. And so it refreshes their voice, but it also evolves through the story. Look for uh,
4: prepositional phrases and three syllable words. Uh, Maybe print it out and go through with a highlighter, because if you find that all of your characters are using the same, you know, three word prepositional phrase in their dialogue, or they're all, using the same suite of, you know, three-syllable words when they are trying to describe something, that is often the easiest way to fix this. Yes. So just highlight it, you're like, oh, my gosh. Everybody says unusual. Everybody Everybody has is saying eyes. unusual. You, she <laughs> says unusual and he says weird. And you make that decision early on and then you replace it. Mm-hmm. And now you've taken the first steps at defining yeah. their voices. Now, and,
3: and this sounds like a cheap answer uh, because— you know, even though you're talking about high concept stuff and all that, I think a lot of people are going to hear this and go, oh, well, just give them visual and, and you know, verbal tics. That's That's cheap. But no, it totally works. And the reason it works is because it helps remind you. Mm-hmm. And so even if it's just something simple, like in the Mirador series, the character Fang, she is sardonic and she is sarcastic all the time. And that's a very simple thing, but it keeps me remembering who she is And if she says a line that sounds like it should come from another character, it's easy for me to go back and go, oh, no, wait. She wouldn't say it that way. She would say it this way. Mm -hmm. And that keeps them much more distinct than you think if all you're starting from is,
1: oh, we'll give them a verbal tick. Yeah, Yeah. I agree with that 100%. Um, The thing I will do to help with this also is remember the character's passion. Everybody is passionate about different things. And if I can remember, wait, this character really, really cares about food and how it's presented and this character just it will skip dinners, right, because they're just working and doesn't really mind and these sorts of things. And those two characters, that sort of thing, just a simple thing like that, will help you to rem- remember this person's eating fancy chocolate and is liking that it's like 98% dark. And this <laughs> character can't remember what the last chocolate bar they had was. It was just calories. Mm-hmm. I'm going to call it here. We have so many questions, so I'm sorry we didn't get to them all. But Piper has some homework for us.
2: Oh, I do. And my brain just died. I'm so sorry. Okay, so my homework for you is to take dialogue, not narrative, dialogue, um, and take the characters who are involved in dialogue. Probably works better with two or three, just a limited number of people in the dialogue, and swap them. So character A might say one thing, character B might say another. Now swap them. And how would character B say that first line? And how would character A respond?
1: Excellent. I really like that writing exercise. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write.
0: Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction—